Welcome to the Speak the Language podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm going to make today's intro very, very short because, frankly, today's episode is packed full of information that I think you, as a turkey hunter, will find very intriguing, very informative. So we're going to dive straight into it and not waste a lot of time. So today we are interviewing Dr. Marcus Lashley and Dr. Will Goolsby, who are wildlife biologists, who are very interested in turkeys and turkey science and they are also the host of the new podcast called wild turkey science that is made possible by turkeys for tomorrow you can find that podcast on all major podcast platforms if you like or you're interested in what we talk about today check out their new podcast they, they dive into a science the science a lot deeper there so check those guys out so you know what's coming down the pipe in this episode these are kind of this is kind of a broad look at the topics that we discuss we talk about um, impacts of season timing. One of the things that we've seen in uh, recent years is we've seen some states actually change their season framework. So we, we talk about that. Uh, we talk about the turkey decline. It's not a fun subject to talk about, but it is a topic that seems to be on the tip of every hunter's tongue, turkey hunter's tongue today. So we'd spend some time talking about the decline, the apparent decline. How severe is this decline? Do we know how severe it is? Uh, we take some time talking about controversial subjects. And believe me, we don't do it just for the sake of being controversial. We do it because these guys have a different view on things, being biologists, being with what they specialize and what they spend their time doing. And so I value their opinions heavily. Uh, we talk about a lot more. We get a lot, lot more in depth. I just wanted you to know kind of what to expect. Last thing. Before we dive straight into the episode, if you have the time, please take a minute, give us a rating on Spotify, uh, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show out tremendously. And last but certainly not, certainly not least, we are taking the podcast on the road again. Come see us in Starkville at Rick's Cafe, February 28th from 6 to 8 p.m. Me and Jordan will be there with the Spring Legion guys. We're going to be giving away a lot of cool stuff, um, a lot of calls, a lot of gear, uh, turkey vest, and then the crown jewel of it all. We are going to be giving away, thank you to Turkeys for Tomorrow, we're giving away a Super Black Eagle 320 gauge, must be present to win. So come to Rick's February 28th, 6 to 8, come hang out. That's it. Let's get right into the show. So let's let's start the conversation off this way. Y'all recently started a podcast, the Turkey Science Podcast. Before we go into any of the stuff that Jordan and I want to talk about, kind of tell me, I guess, kind of the the genesis behind starting that, the mindset, what y'all are trying to accomplish. Um, I know y'all are associated with Turkey. The, the podcast is associated with Turkeys for Tomorrow, which is an organization that we're all familiar with. But if y'all mm-hmm. could... Um, Kind of talk about that podcast a little bit. Yeah, like, uh, I guess I can jump in to start with. So I, I've been uh, involved in, in podcasting for a while and have, have done quite a bit, you know, uh, of things on Fire You that I hosted and also been on here with you a couple of times and and uh, on various other platforms. And really, that led us to start talking about this wild turkey science podcast that mm-hmm. that kind of was the original genesis you know i had some experience and i had been working with will really close uh for for a while and we've known each other for more than a decade and uh, we, we got to talking about trying to bring something similar that would be complementary to to what you guys do and what a lot of these other podcasts you know in the uh 
in, in this field do, we wanted to try to complement that from a scientific standpoint as scientists and really just try to be transparent and objective and present to you, you know, the data and uh, give all the scientists that are working on wild turkeys a platform if they want it to present their data and their their thoughts on on uh, all these different topic areas, you know, that, that we all argue over all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where this came from. And, and Will and I were talking about it, and Will had a, re- a close relationship already with Turkeys for Tomorrow, and he mentioned it to them, and that kind of started the process and got the conversation. They immediately realized that that was something that, that they wanted to support you know, this, this conversation to add this, you know, this, uh, this part of the conversation, I guess, from the science scientists, mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, a platform where everybody could, could have take it on and, and, uh, listen to it and think about it and challenge everybody, you know, to, to think about what data we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, and to add to that, I mean, you know, Marcus and I have been trying to share some of the science that we're involved in, you know, on social media for the past couple of years as well. Um, and those, I think getting those tidbits out there is great. Um, but as you'll see from the comment sections on several of those posts that we've made, that that little snippet doesn't allow us to fully flesh out, you know, all the mm-hmm. context of the study and all our ideas and thoughts, like what are the positives of it? Where are some areas that it could be improved and what other research do we need uh, to make some conclusive Um, management recommendations based off of it. And so we would occasionally, you know, like Marcus, he started up his other podcast and he'd talk about it some on there. And then we'd get invited to come on various podcasts and talk about our ongoing research, you know, for an hour or so. But that wasn't really enough time, I feel like, for us to flesh out not only all of our ideas, but also going back in time and talking about the studies that have already been done and what they say as well to try to kind of paint a more complete picture. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that try to be a one-stop shop. Like if you're trying to look for the hard data, you know, or or hear from scientists on, you know, wild turkeys, try to, you know, put that together in a place where people can go and, you know, binge on that information, if you will. Sure. Uh, so there's because there's way more people that are interested in hearing about us talk about the nuanced science of this than I ever would have anticipated. Yeah, I didn't expect it either, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So I I've I've thought about this a lot. We live in like the the world we live in as far as like how people consume media. It's almost paradoxical because on in one hand, you look at social media, like everyone wants quick, short tidbits, like get Mm -hmm. to the point, get a 30 second video. But then at the same time, podcast where you have long form conversation where you can really dive into details is more popular than it ever has been. And so people want people want information on extreme ends of the, of the spectrum. They want the short, mm-hmm. quick stuff, but then it's like I said, it's, it's well-timed what y'all are doing and the subject matter that y'all are talking about because people are, you know, the, the, the hot topic that anyone and everyone's talking about when you talk about spring turkeys is turkey numbers, turkey populations, turkey mm-hmm. declines, and people want answers. And so they don't really know where to look. We had folks, I mean, Jordan and I are, are will tell you quicker than anybody that we love spring turkeys. We love hunting turkeys in the spring, but we're no biologist. And so that was kind of how 
Marcus, I started asking you to come on the podcast mm-hmm. a couple of years ago because people kept asking us biology and science questions. And we're like, we, we I'm not that guy, man. Like, I'm just a turkey <laughs> yeah. hunter. Like, yeah. I'm not. Well, you know a lot about turkeys and you've interacted with them a ton. And, you know, that's part of the uh, that's part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. There are a lot of people that know a lot about turkeys. And then we they. You know, I think the missing part of the conversation, like you're you're saying, is well, what about the the scientists that are actually out trying to do experimental mm-hmm. work where we're tagging turkeys and following them around, doing everything they do. You know that that side has not been, uh, you know, in the space. I guess at the same mm-hmm. uh, level, you know, and I think it's really complementary. You know, mm-hmm. we we I love turkey hunting and i love to hear people talk about how much they love turkey hunting and get tips on that and you know getting to hear different opinions from people that that hunt all over the place i think there's a lot of value in that and we kind of saw that we had an opportunity to add some value to that conversation by trying to cover the science part right and to me like bottom line if you start understanding the science part of the wild turkey you become a better hunter too when you start understanding how they work, what they need, yeah. all of the, could, all of the above, they a, all work as one. Yeah, we kind of have a case study on that with Will right now. <laughs> we're, we're seeing if the science on it makes better turkey. Well, <laughs> oh, I can tell you, I can. I'm going to have to elaborate on this. I can tell you there's not a linear relationship. Yeah. That's the, I'm very, very intrigued by the, uh, by the conclusions of that study. We'll have to come back and talk about that. <laughs> that, that there is some meat on this bone that just got picked. Yes. Yes, there is. Or Marcus would have you believe there is. Yeah. That's yeah. a hypothesis, guys. <laughs> I, mean, I do most, I do most of my turkey hunting by myself. So nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's a, that's intentional that's a strategy yeah. well it's like i mean the first time like it was shortly after i think it was like the second or third season they started letting me hunt on camera for primos and i missed <laughs> i missed like three turkeys in a stretch of five days and oh my people are like what's the matter with you i was like you don't understand i've been missing turkeys for years i just didn't <laughs> use it nobody saw it yeah it wasn't <laughs> broadcast everybody <laughs> uh no so so let's like marcus i was you know i sent you a you know i shot you a message of kind of things i wanted to talk to about Mm -hmm. today um i kind of just want to dive dive into those because i mean i'm sure very surface level topics i might add (laughs) define circus no surface surface level light light duty Oh, I thought you said circus level. No, I no, okay. no. I no. With that. Uh, oh, you took that well thinking he said circus. Uh, yeah. I was like, <laughs> it fits. Um, so, but these are the questions that, that get asked all the time or somehow get end up sent to me and I don't know how to answer mm-hmm. them. And so I know this first one is a pretty loaded question or one like you can't give a, maybe not give like a super definitive answer to, but like we said earlier, so what anyone and everyone in the turkey hunting world is talking about today the decline the numbers the population we like i think we're to the point now where like no one's really arguing a decline anymore so Mm -hmm. the question is is like well how severe is it i mean like really how severe is it is there or is it severe enough to where we're like 
there's some areas in the country where we need to stop hunting turkeys. Like, like or how, how severe are we talking about this decline? It's apparent, but how severe is it? Mm-hmm. You want me to take that one, Marcus? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So let me, let me start out by answering this question by describing some of the difficulties that we have in making that determination. Mm. So one of those is that we don't really have a great way of estimating Turkey numbers. You know, we, we keep track um, in various states of the the annual hunter harvest, um, and that can be that can serve as an index of what populations are doing. But as you guys know, there's all sorts of things that go into the total an- number of animals harvested in a given hunting season, right? So, you know, some states um, since they've been keeping track of this have made significant changes in their hunting season frameworks. So that's going to influence harvest. You know, maybe they're taking you know decoys out for the whole season or they're not allowing decoys for the first, you know, week or two, or maybe they've cut the bag limit. Maybe they've, you know, moved the season opener back. So all those things are immediately going to affect harvest. And in research, what we oftentimes try to do if we're trying to answer a question like that directly is we hold everything constant and just change one thing at a time so that we can isolate for that effect. Mm. Um, Now I'm not saying I'm not blaming, you know, States for making those changes because they're trying to address a potential decline or a real decline in many cases, Um, but it just makes it, it makes it fuzzies, it fuzzies the picture, right? It muddies the water. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing that makes it difficult to use those numbers, those hunter harvest numbers is that, um, a lot of times in biology, we also like to pair that information with data on catch per unit effort, which basically means how hard does an individual have to try to successfully harvest a turkey? And of course that changes, uh, and goes up and down depending on how often hunters hunt. And then also how many hunters we have participating. And we know that, you know, like a lot of other segments of hunting right now, hunter numbers have declined. Um, according to, you know, one of the most recent reports that was published in the National Wild Turkey um, Sympo- or the, the Turkey Symposium, um, hunter numbers over the past, you know, five years, actually it was from 2014 to 2019, have gone down by about 18%. Um, so you would expect harvest to decline alongside that. Now, that same paper suggests that spring harvest is down from 2014 to 2019 across states by about, I think the number is like 12%. Um, so the har- or the population as indexed by the harvest is definitely declining, but that's going happening alongside a decline in hunter numbers at the same time. So I don't know, most of the, to I guess my succinct answer, once I've kind of put it in the right context, is that there does appear to be some clear trends that turkey populations are declining. It varies a little bit how steep that decline is from one area to another, um, but I don't think we're in a sky is falling scenario right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the best estimates that I've seen are, you know, somewhere in the nature of, you know, uh, not like upper single digits to lower double digits percentages over the past several years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, is, that's key. I mean, because. That's nice to hear because I think that goes back to the time, like the times that we live in, because that's typically what you kind of hear that it's, oh, the sky's falling. Like, this is the worst that we we got to batten down the hatches or we're not going to have them anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to I guess it's nice to hear more of a clear picture that it's not it's not that bad, if that makes any sense. Well, it depends yeah. on your perspective to that, too, because if you talk to a landowner who's a turkey hunter, and I know you guys have this conversation all the time. They'll tell you, you know, I used to have a booming turkey population. We used to kill three or four beer, birds a year on my property, but now we're lucky to see one. So to them, you know, tell yeah. you know, trying to tell them it's not that bad. 
it's it's not going to work out well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think an important part of the context, uh, you know, based on what you guys are talking about, is that there that you know we're talking about it at a really broad scale on average, mm-hmm. but there are definitely areas that are experiencing more severe declines, and then other areas that might even be on the increase. Mm-hmm. You know, and those those are kind of all going in together and. To add to what Will was saying, we, we have an upcoming episode on wild turkey science with Dr. Coulter Chitwood. And to me, it, it hasn't aired yet, but it is, it's pretty powerful. Hmm. It, we get really deep into the science and, and everything on it. And uh, that may not be p- as palatable to some people as, as others. But they that group up at Oklahoma State, they took the time to go through and get all of the vital rates that have been published on Eastern wild turkeys, like all of them. And they put all that stuff into a big model. And what, you know, basically we can kind of model the trajectory of populations when we put all those vital rates in. So you're talking about like hen survival and uh, nesting success and poult survival. You know, they took all those estimates from all these studies and, and basically tried to calculate how much of the variation in those different numbers are actually biological versus, you know, we're trying to screen out things that are related to just error in measurement or changes in measurement, right? Mm-hmm. And they put all that into a model and they showed uh, with that model overall, taking all that stuff into account that it's pretty similar to what Will said, that we have been, you know, we should expect, I think it, it ended up being about six or 7%. Uh, decline uh, is mm. what they they did, but we the the paper that this peer reviewed has been accepted at a journal, and we're going to share it basically as soon as it comes available. And we're waiting to air that episode with them to make sure that it gets through the peer review process. Mm. But uh, you know, we know that that is going to be soon. So, uh, but th- to me, that was pretty powerful. You know, that that is what we need to be doing. We have tons of work done on turkeys. It's been great work for a long time. A lot of great scientists involved in that work. And, uh, you know, doing processes like that are pretty important because they are powerful in showing you what, you know, the closest thing to truth that we can get to. Right. But they also do some other things that are pretty important, like show us where there are holes. Mm-hmm. Or do we not have data we need? Yeah. And I think and, that, it, that was a really invaluable contribution from those guys because of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Marcus, you mentioned that we do have data that shows that populations in some areas are even increasing. And just to expand on that, during the conversation that we had with Adam Butler in an episode that came out a couple of weeks ago, he mentioned specifically in Mississippi that they've had areas that they've seen, you know, go, go through the boom. And then a slight bust, and then they're booming again. Maybe not booming is is the correct term, but at least those populations are kind of coming back up to what they were, you know, prior prior to an initial decline. And one of the things that he shared with us that he he had kind of hypothesized, um, or or, you know, his educated guess was that that had something to do with the timing of when those areas were restocked, and that you know, early restocking, plenty of resources, populations grow fast. And then some factor becomes limiting the population declines again, but then it starts to, you know, b- balance out over time. So it may have something to do with when areas were restocked as well. Hmm. That's interesting for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, going back because like I know y'all were talking about, you know, some areas are seeing, you know, you'll find areas that are actually seeing an increase right now. And just from personal observation, I don't know that I've necessarily seen an increase, but it's like areas within my own state, areas within states that I frequent every spring. It's like you'll find little pockets within that state that you talk about decline and the folks in that area be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I ain't seen Mm -hmm. a decline. And I'm not yeah. from my experience last spring. I mean, a spot I've grown up hunting, hunted religiously for 15 years. I've seen exactly what you're talking about there. Back, you mm-hmm. know, 15 years ago, it was really good. Went down, you know, within the last 10 years. But based on my experience last year, I'm like, I feel good about this now. Mm-hmm. I just had a f- fantastic spring for us here in Turkey's Goblin out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to add to that, one one thing that's going on at, at a broad scale is we have other things that aren't related to us at all that are governing population dynamics. And I think we have, you know, uh, some good evidence of that now. I mean, Adam talked about having a near record uh, reproduction year mm. uh, of turkeys and, and a couple of places have indicated very similar yeah. and if you look at the populations over a long time period we would call that stochasticity that just basically means that it goes up and down even if the population is doing fine you still expect there to be really big years where they do really well and then other years that aren't so good there you know it's varying from year to year in those populations and we're you know in several places we have some indication that this past year was a real up year which is good, right? And then we we would predict based on that that gobbling. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to work out which season it would be. I guess next season it'll probably be fire, right? Because we're gonna have a lot of two year olds running around that are gobbling their face off, and mm-hmm. I'm all about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but that you know that's important to keep in context that we see these broad trends in reproduction cycles too. And a lot of times we'll see very similar across multiple states where yeah. we, we might have a big increase or a big decrease uh, that, you know, may just coincide with weather patterns or, or uh, things like that, that, that can influence reproduction. Which mm-hmm. makes it really difficult and frustrating sometimes to try to do this work on turkeys mm-hmm. just because, you know, and people get frustrated by how long it sometimes takes us to do a research project. But that's one of the reasons why is we have to do it over a long enough time scale to make sure that we're capturing all those ups and downs. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't collect data from one month and expect it to be accurate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I would have suspect in the turkey world it had to be years. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That was gonna be my question. Is there a a rule of thumb per se when you know work that applies to turkeys that you know it's gotta be at least this amount of years before we can even consider, you know, this data viable to look at to draw some sort of conclusion from. That, that's a great question. I don't think there is a simple answer to it. <laughs> <laughs> you done stumped. That, that question wasn't surface level, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was circus level. <laughs> that was the, that was the professor way of saying we don't know. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think what a lot of uh, the scientists agree that the longer term, the better. Mm-hmm. But there there are also some ways with clever experimental design that you can get around. You know, mm-hmm. uh, some of that variation as well. And and Will and I have spent some time on wild turkey science trying to articulate that to people so that it, you know, that it makes sense. But we 
you know, some of the the approaches that we're seeing implemented, one of them is in Mississippi ongoing now and one's in Tennessee that we've already presented. Th- those designs are really powerful because they have a control set aside your your treatment. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, you know, we know that populations are going to cycle. So if we have a true control and we know how the control compares to the treatment before you ever put a treatment in there, right? You have two places that you know how they compare to one another. And then you go into one of those and you you put a treatment in, whatever that is, you just change something. And then you can track both of them together. And we know what the what we should expect to happen based on the control in that case. And then that that strengthens our treatment data really well. I mean, yeah. it, and, and it... It doesn't necessarily allow you to get away with a short-term experiment, but it makes shorter-term experiments more powerful. Mm-hmm. And if you have that kind of design, and that's not the only study design, but that's one that we've been implementing here recently. If you have that kind of design and long-term and large sample size, now we're starting to really get powerful stuff, especially if you replicate that in many places. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, can you elaborate on control a little bit? Is yeah. that like a pen, like a cage or yes. something? Or? So, so what, so what <laughs> we would typically do, the, the most powerful design that we typically implement is a before and after control experiment. Um, and we pair that with a treatment. So basically what we would do, uh, we would want more than two areas, but we'll just use two areas for the example. So we start collecting data, let's say our, our, variable of interest was the pulp per hen ratio. That's what we wanted to track. Um, so we tracked that for a couple of years to get a baseline on both of those areas. And then we implement some change on the treatment area, but we do not on the control area. Let's say we change, um, we change, we do some kind of habitat treatment to increase brood rearing cover on the treatment area. So the year after that, of course, we continue to monitor. And if the pulp per hen ratio goes up, on the treatment area where we improve brooding cover, but it doesn't improve on the area that was the control where we changed nothing. Well, that's a pretty good indicator that it was what we changed on that treatment area that resulted in the increase in pulp per hen ratios. Okay. Uh, and I'm smelling uh, what you're stepping in there yeah. now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We got, we leave him, we leave him one area alone, let it do what it yeah. do. And the other one yeah. we're messing with and seeing we, if we can improve or, or right. improve, whatever yeah. you want to. Yeah. And in, in that same example, if, if, you know, you could end up with a situation where the control also increases. Yeah. And it, so if they both increase, then you know that your treatment isn't why it increased. It was some other variable that's just, mm. you know, like okay. maybe it just happened to be a good year for for nesting because spring, of the temperature or something. Yeah, spring weather or something along those lines. Yeah, so you know it wasn't related to your change because you have that design then. Mm. And that that's pretty powerful and allows us to detangle changing stuff from just whatever happens normally and that that you know there a lot of people see what's going on on their property and you don't have the control to compare it to so maybe you change mm-hmm. something about the way you're managing things and you you see a response to that and you can't necessarily link it to your activity because you don't have that control to know just how things changed so if you uh, improved habitat last year on your property. And then this year, you know, you have a record reproduction. A lot of people would assume that was because of their habitat when indeed 
we know at the state level that we just had a big boom in, in reproduction, mm-hmm. right? right? So it's hard to detangle those. And that's what we're trying to do with the an experimental approach like that is trying to isolate whatever factor we want to change to see how, what is the true effect of that change. Gotcha. That, I'm glad we elaborated on that because I had in my head like envisioning some big pen of turkeys. Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes it is that, you know, it just depends yeah. on what kind of study it is and what you're trying to manipulate. So uh, just to kind of stay on this subject, just for one more second, how many, like say, is there a set acreage of like a controlled area y'all are basing that off of? Like, or is it very based on terrain and where, where you're at doing the studies? Yeah, in a typical study, I mean, our treatment area would probably be thousands of acres, something like the scale of a wildlife management area. Mm-hmm. And then you would want to pair that with a similarly sized area that was your control. So you may have an entire wildlife management area that receives one treatment and another one that we don't do anything on to to use that as our baseline, our, our basis for comparison. Okay, so doing it on a pretty large scale. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you have to, especially with turkeys, you know, you're talking about an animal that may use a thousand acres just during the breeding season. Right. You know, so. Yeah. I think, I think that's an important point. The treatment size would vary based on what kind of question you are, but you're trying to address, but with something like turkeys that can range quite, quite widely and uh, you know, the surrounding areas might influence a population. So the larger you can get the treatment areas generally the better of course you know uh we can't do that at you know we can't compare regions to one another or you know subspecies like there's there's obviously some upper bounds to size as well where it starts to become less meaningful mm-hmm. right right okay mm-hmm. that's awesome i'm glad that's that's interesting because I, I was riding around last year and i don't even know if i was in the, the spot where they're doing a study but i saw like and a difference in WMAs in Mississippi, how one was getting treated versus the other. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a test subject here or not. I'm not even going to elaborate on that, but I did notice <laughs> a difference in the two areas and they weren't mm-hmm. far apart. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. that, that one of the ongoing studies in Mississippi is that they're actually manipulating pairs of WMAs. They have one WMA they change some stuff on the way that uh, the hunting is is occurring and then have a control where they didn't change it and Hmm. they're comparing reproduction and uh various factors that they get that they get through you know the the hunter surveys and the hunter harvest and that sort of thing from those areas Hmm. interesting uh going back to something that y'all mentioned in this past um past subject i guess is y'all were talking about you know a guy does you know, habitat manipulation on his place. And then he sees this huge growth and, you know, he thinks it's, you know, strictly due to habitat manipulation when overall the state, you know, had a big year. I wanted to ask a question because I was thinking about a similar topic on, I guess, the opposite side of that. I've heard anecdotes. I've seen it happen personally. I'm sure y'all have as well. You'll hear stories about um, a bad deer camp member or a guy that, has access to 200 acres that doesn't know how to police himself. And if there's three turkeys gobbling on that 200 acres, he's going to try his best to kill all three of them. You know, those kind of, and you hear situations like that where, you know, he kills, you know, the three turkeys off this hypothetical 200 acres and the next year there's no turkeys gobbling there or, you know, and so I wonder, you know, 
you hear stories like that, and I know this is probably kind of a, I guess, a vague type question, but with the situations like that, could that ever have any kind of large scale population effect, or is that just kind of well, you could ruin that one core area, but it's not going to affect the over, you know, the over stroke, the the broad stroke picture. I guess I know that was a mouthful. <laughs> Talking like me over there. Yeah. <laughs> Marcus, you want to take this one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that, does uh, that make well, any sense whatsoever? Like it, uh, uh, I'm going to have to say no, it didn't. Like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I think I, I'm uh, picking up what you're putting down. Uh, I think, yeah, that that's one of those issues where, you know, we couldn't experimentally get at that much better and detangle it from other factors to mm. try to as vaguely as possible answer your question. So what what someone in that scenario is experiencing and perceiving may be a real effect mm. or it may not be. Right. That's mm. the problem with not knowing, not having some point of comparison is uh, you know, you see things happening and you attribute them to a change that you know occurred, but you're not taking into account that other things may have also changed. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the problem with, you know, uh, us uh, as hunters that are interacting with the resource all the time. We know we have changed some things and we see what we think is a response to that. And we haven't necessarily isolated the factor mm-hmm. uh, in terms of you know, the the case with, that you brought up, that I think that's one of the prevalent hypotheses that, that is out there is that you could locally depress a population uh, with the really high harvest rate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I think that's, you know, we need to be clear that that's a hypothesis and not, not as strong of data on that that aspect yeah and and kind of bigger bigger picture from you know as far as filling information gaps in turkey science um we really we we've played around there's some numbers that have been thrown out some generalizations on how many gobblers you can kill um what percentage of gobblers you can kill in a given area in a given year uh, but we don't have hard data to show us this is what happens if you kill 10 20 30 40 50 and all mm. the way up percent we don't really have a good idea of what is sustainable and it probably even varies from one place to another. Yeah. yeah that's what uh, I was going to ask if y'all had some type of recommendation about like, say you have 10 gobblers on a place. What's a mm-hmm. safe number to take? Mm-hmm. The baseline that's been thrown out there. And like I said, I mean, it's, this is based on some simulation exercises, some modeling. Um, we haven't gone out and done an experiment like w- with a with a really good design like we were talking about earlier with before and after with the control and you measure the effect of some impact. But that being said, um, the heuristic that is normally thrown around, which is basically just a fancy word of say way to say rule of thumb, is about it's safe to take about thirty percent of a population in any given year from a property. So in your scenario, Jordan, ten birds, I'd feel comfortable taking three gobblers. It's hmm. good but, to know, man. Just for it. Refer, you know, rule of thumb, like you're talking about, just to giving a guy an idea if he's at in a camp or whatever, and they've got 20 gobblers on the place that they know about from camera surveys or whatever. Yeah. You know, what, six of them would be a safe yeah. number? Right. But but then again, you see instances of properties, and I know you guys do too. I've got a buddy that's got a nice place in South Carolina, and he usually invites me out to hunt every year, and it's like 600 acres, and then like half the time in opening weekend, they kill like <laughs> – 
four or five birds and I'm like, man, I don't even want to come. I feel bad even coming out there because, <laughs> you know, y'all, y'all have already done some work. Um, but they, they do that every year. And it seems like on that particular property, the birds come back. And so that, you know, that's the thing that we have to think about with turkeys is they operate at so much larger of a scale than we typically think about as landowners, land managers, and hunters. And so it's entirely dependent on the landscape context. And it just so happens that in this particular instance, he's surrounded by a series of other relatively large, relatively well-managed properties where they don't do any turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. So he's just basically creating a vacuum and other people's birds are likely coming in because there's some landscape connectivity. There's how we typically refer to it. If so, if you're connected to other populations of birds and you've got a good flow, it's possible to probably increase that number. But again, this mm-hmm. is all hypothetical at this point. Mm-hmm. We don't have hard data <clears throat> on it. Well, and then, you know, Adam talked about this in one of our recent episodes as well, that if, if that, you know, that, having more area with you know you're spreading out the hunting pressure even though it's concentrated on one property it's drawing from a much larger area but also if you're in a landscape context where that area happens to be really high productivity on that can on top of that other effect also support higher harvest rate mm-hmm. so if the per- population is really producing and and you're recruiting a lot more birds in that area, then you could probably sustain a higher harvest. And that was something that that Adam talked about from the Mississippi data, that uh, some of the the data sets that he has access to show that where pay, you know some uh, large land holdings, you know they're they're generally cooperative of landowners together that have really high productivity because of a lot of habitat work that they they. Uh, you know, spend a lot of time on, you know, they're sustaining a much higher harvest rate than you would expect on average in the state. Right. Which yeah, I about, think is important. You're like you're reaping the reward from your effort then, right? You, you're making a landscape that's more productive with turkeys and that is increasing your opportunity. Yeah. He said, he said on the statewide average that they were killing about, was it Marcus like thir- a bird per 1300 or so acres yeah 15 12, 12 to 1300 I think is what he said yeah but then on some of these really well-managed clubs they were sustainably meaning year over year they were continually harvesting a bird per every 250 acres hmm. yeah. that's a so big difference that's yeah. a giant yes. difference yes also what four bird difference well yeah. it, and it's I'm like, not gonna do any multiplication but <laughs> that's, that's like, I'm, I'll let Jordan yeah. take the math I, got, I can take my shoes off <laughs> Uh, well, that's, you know, I've heard Adam talk about this too, even when, you know, when the, the transplant efforts were going back, uh, were going on in Mississippi, like, you know, the restocking and all that he talks about, there were areas within Mississippi that never had to be restocked because the population mm-hmm. stayed healthy. Some yeah. of those areas, some of those counties to this day, I know guys that live over there and on their property, they're killing three to four turkeys a year, every year. And they've been doing that for 20 years and probably longer than that. And they never mm-hmm. tell the difference. And it's just mm-hmm. kind of going back to what we said earlier. There's like, there's just pockets where they just seem to thrive no matter what you do. And I, you know, yeah. again, I don't know what to point the finger at at that other than you go, it's kind of always been like that, you know? And yeah. So if it's, uh, if it's okay. my property and I wanted to play around with that, sorry to interrupt you, Jordan, Are but you good? just real quick. If it's my property, I want to play around with that. I'm going to start out conservative and then, I'm going to maybe bump that up by one bird, you know, not every year, but like one bird 
maybe every few years and see how the population responds. And if I feel, you know, if I feel like I'm getting to a point where the population is declining, then I'm going to back back off of that. I mean, that's maybe how you could find that tipping point, but it's mm-hmm. hard to do, especially on a, on a smaller property. And by smaller, I mean, even, you know, anything under probably several thousand acres, because you're just dependent on so many other factors as to what mm-hmm. goes on. Right. Right. Um, kind of riffing off of that in the Southeast, these large timber timbered areas on average, a flock of Turkey, how, how many miles acreage do they use in a given year? A lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Got it. Moving on. Yeah. Thousands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was just always curious, uh, been curious, man, man, they use miles or, Mm-hmm. I've read yes. some stuff yeah, they're on gonna, social media posts, but they're definitely going to use multiple square miles worth of area. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, even I think uh, was it oh, like Brett, sections on sections? Yes. Was, was it Brett Will that recently talked about even during just the breeding season that uh, it, it might be a thousand acres? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you when you combine that with you know switching between. Uh, spring, summer, and fall, winter ranges, and then you factor in, you know, like especially young hens dispersing to new areas and all that, you know, all that, it, it can add up really, really quickly. Yeah. Okay. I was just, it's always been curious to me because you find these little spots, you know, like that may be 40 acres that have turkeys every single spring. And you're like, I feel like they never leave here, mm-hmm. which I know they do during the winter and other seasons, but yeah. You know what I mean? You find like yeah. you've got a spot like that that you it's forty acres and it seemed like there's a yeah. turkey on it every time you go. There was a there yeah. was a forty acre track that I got I I don't own or anything. I just got permission to hunt on it starting when I was probably seventeen or eighteen years old. And for the longest time, it was good for one turkey every spring. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was like clockwork. And I think for three springs in a row, a row, it was like the first weekend in April. Pow! And I just I was like. This 40 acres is magic. I just didn't know mm-hmm. what to make of it. I just thought he there was always one living there. Didn't know no. what to make of it. Now, I mean, obviously, I don't understand these things as much as y'all do, but like looking at it at a broader scale, I can look at the surrounding properties and be like, well, it kind of makes sense why there's a turkey always hanging out there. Everywhere around mm-hmm. it's pretty good, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a lot of frustration that stems from from that too, because if you know we start thinking about what turkeys need at different times of the year, and people will get really frustrated that all deer season they're just covered up with turkeys, and then it comes time for gobbling and they don't have them anymore, mm-hmm. or uh, you're on the other end of that where you don't see them all year round, and then right about time it's for gobbling or right about time for nesting is more typical when I. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to people as soon as it's time to nest and all of a sudden you got a bunch of turkeys. That's the kind and, of property I like to be on. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of reasons for that. And a lot of people probably put that together, but they need different things at different times of the year. And if you're in a situation where you are creating the best game in town for a place to nest, as soon as those hens start going to nest, you start drawing in a lot of gobblers, following them and following them there. And that often is, you know, a place that maybe you don't have as much mass production from from uh, oaks or whatever. So, you know, you kind of see the turkeys moving around in the landscape, and uh, they're they're tracking 
whatever resource at the time they need. And if your property is only providing one of those, you're going to see them concentrated at that time of the year and not necessarily at other times. Hmm. Okay. So uh, if you have one of those properties that has buku turkeys all winter, is that something you can, I mean, you can change by doing habitat work? Like you can keep them there by doing the right things? Or is that just their natural process to leave? Well, I think uh, they, they're going to track the resources that they need at different times. And if you change the availability of that resource, like you improve the uh, place for nesting, for instance, mm -hmm. you may see that more of them stick around because they have access to what they're looking for. Okay. Yeah. The main thing that I see on those properties that, you know, have turkeys during deer season, but not turkey season is they don't have enough openings. You know, it's just, it's, it's all mm -hmm. dense forest, maybe a few small food plots. But other than that, there's really no open areas that are providing those nesting areas and those, those bugging or, areas, you know, or even strutting areas. Yeah. Yeah. That too. Okay. Good to know. Mm -hmm. I was just, I have saw another thing I've always been curious about. I've know, known a lot of people that's always worked on those properties to try to improve them for turkeys. And they always tell me like they never stay. And obviously they're missing something, but at the same time, I didn't know if that was just like a natural thing that was bred in those turkeys mm -hmm. where they just know to move. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, there, there is probably some of that, uh, even from the historical writings, like I'm talking about going way back. They talked about these huge flocks of turkeys that, that traversed the landscape and traveled, you know, really long distances as big groups tracking things like masting that's what they were talking about back in those days so you know just that they traveled to big oak flats where there's a lot of acorns available and uh you know and then they'd see them move back into the uplands i guess uh during the the spring when it starts getting time for nesting or you know they may just be avoiding flooding at that time so you know it's hard to make out exactly what they were observing back then but even then they were talking about turkeys moving tracking resources and uh you know i think I, i've been in the situation and, and even as a hunter on a couple of properties where we'd get you know we wouldn't really see many turkeys through the fall and then early in the turkey season we wouldn't see many turkeys but then you know about early april all of a sudden the, the woods start lighting up and, you know, that was where what we interpreted it as, is, you know, we had a really good situation for nesting Hens started coming in and, and, uh, nesting. And, and then we all of a sudden had gobblers hanging around, uh, you know, in, in that area and we see them move in to the area later in the season like that. Right. Right. Well, and we've seen the other end of that, um, Jordan has too. I don't want to say the name of the place cause I don't want to upset anybody, but there was a place that we hunted uh probably four or five years ago and we were there kind of the early part of the mississippi season and there was good many turkeys you know aesthetically mm -hmm. it was a pretty you know it was a beautiful property but then come nesting season or when you would think hens would start going towards nests that kind of be like well we didn't kill them all where'd they go and then nobody mm -hmm. else and they just kind of vacated yeah, we're just yeah, just moving on to somewhere else mm -hmm. when they, you know those kinds of things also confound our interpretation of other things like, oh, we killed too many turkeys. Well, it may actually not be that. They may just be moving somewhere mm -hmm. that they need to track a different resource. 
that's a good you know, point. Or, or you could have the opposite end of that spectrum. Well, obviously, we can kill a lot more of them because mm-hmm. we're late in the season. And now we're covered up with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so th- all those things are really muddying the water and making it hard for us to interpret what's going on, really. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back to my list of uh, super controversial surface level questions. If that's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And sure. I just like I've heard this one talked about a bunch. We've never talked about it on here, I don't believe. Um, but I feel like it's it's right to bring it up just because everybody it's like one of the things you hear everyone talk about or people get their toes stepped on. Changing of season framework. We haven't seen it here in Mississippi yet. We've seen it in mm-hmm. Alabama. Have we Tennessee changed their bag limit? I don't they change season they change season days too. Yeah. Well, so, I think that's this coming season is the first year of it, mm-hmm. the season moving. I think it's April fifteenth this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he got he got <laughs> all been out of shape about it. Look at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in terms of that, I don't know. I mean, like so much of that. The the here's the questions that we get asked that I don't know how to answer because again, folks ask us these questions they expect us to know, and I'm like, I do not know beyond my area of expertise, like. Are these decisions based off of science or was it just a knee-jerk reaction because people are freaking out about a decline and they're just trying to fix it? They're trying to do something to try to, you know, try to fix the evident problem. Um, and then obviously it, there's folks ask about conclusions drawn, like, has it had any effect? Even I, and from what we talked about earlier, I'm like, they, it hasn't been going on long enough to know if it's helped anything or not, yeah. you know? So mm-hmm. I guess the main question that I'm hinging on is what, do y'all have what's y'all's opinions on why these decisions were made? Was it science based or, or was it just kind of a knee jerk reaction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, that's a good question. It's definitely not surface level. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so th- there's a, you know, like you mentioned several things, and I think a lot of them are all factoring into why you see states making these decisions. Um, you know, they're tasked with, trying to manage a resource for hunter opportunity and hunter satisfaction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're always walking this tightrope between trying to make sure that we have turkeys to hunt every year versus keeping turkey hunters happy. And that is a position that I do not envy, but when it comes to, when it comes to trying to ensure those sustainable populations, um, and this is something that, that we talked about recently in one of our episodes and, and shared a highlight on a highlight reel on, but um, I mentioned that, you know, habitat, if, if, so let's just a hypothetical scenario. If, if the changes we're seeing in populations are habitat driven, that's important to know. And that's important to address, but it is under less control, especially in Southeastern states like Mississippi or Alabama is, it's less under control of the state agency than things like season frameworks. Now, I think that they need to be working towards educating landowners on how to make habitat changes, and many of them are and have great technical assistance programs, but that takes time. In the meanwhile, you know, if they feel like they're bleeding turkeys, you know, the the harvest is going down year over year, they need to try to, or oftentimes they're put in a position where they feel like they need to try to do something to address it immediately. And so while we don't have really direct, we don't have direct evidence showing that, um, for instance, delaying the season opening date results in an increase in reproductive output in turkeys and leads to increasing populations. 
we do have several bits and pieces of information that have been amassed over you know decades that show some plausible reasons why killing a lot of the breeding gobblers early in the season could potentially disrupt reproduction. Mm -hmm. And so that is what a lot of these state agency decisions are hinging off of. Um, But then you have states like Mississippi and we are Marcus already mentioned that study briefly. And we can go into more detail on that as well as Tennessee that are directly implementing experimental research frameworks to try to document whether or not delaying season opening does have an effect on population growth. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I think that that's important. So it is to, to directly address one, one part of your question, like it is science driven in the sense that we have a lot of data and the data indicate that there's some problems. And one of the options that States have, like Will just said is to try to manipulate season. Mm-hmm. whether it be bag lemon or timing or, or both. Uh, so that that is something that is, is important to understand. And then, like, you know, the Mississippi and Tennessee studies, which we've covered in detail with scientists involved in those projects, those are, they, they are largely funded by the state agency trying to address that question directly. And, you know, sometimes you have to make decisions before you can collect 10 years of data on it to know if you need to make Mm -hmm. a decision. And, you know, we know that we have enough data indicating that there's concern with turkey populations. And it's more of a question, do we need to wait 10 years to be able to confidently rely on data? Or, you know, should we make the change and then look at the response uh, you know, those, those are really difficult situations to address. Mm-hmm. And a, another thing uh, to add to what Will uh, said, and it came to light when we were talking to Adam about the Mississippi uh, season manipulation study. W- one of the things that happened uh, that, that seems pretty evident uh, from their their experiment is they delayed the season experimentally on some WMAs and the hunters on those WMAs heard more turkey goblin and there seemed to be a higher satisfaction from that. It wasn't, they did not observe increases in the productivity of turkeys where there were more gobblers produced that led to that more gobbling. It's because uh, the season coincided with that peak gobbling. Mm -hmm. So when the majority of people were hunting, more closely aligned with when peak gobbling was and all the birds that would have been removed before peak gobbling weren't removed yet. And then, you know, more pressure. Of, yeah, yeah. More pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of, uh, people heard a lot of gobbling because of that. And they didn't actually see a reduction in the number of turkeys that were harvested as a result of that delay on the, on the experiment. So we just still had the same number of gobblers that were harvested. We still had the same number uh, based on their their uh, several years of estimates, the, there were still the same number of jakes being observed that were being recruited in the populations, but the hunters heard more gobbling because they started when the gobbling was really hot, when when everybody's in the woods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's some of this decision-making is based on biology, and some of it is also balancing hunter satisfaction, and that uh, gave some evidence that there may actually be uh, more satisfaction from some hunters because they're hearing more gobbling when they do get in the woods. So, you know, that's important 
to to take into this whole conversation. Like Will said, this is a really tough position to be in to try to balance those two things. You're trying to be sustainable for the resource and tasked with being sustainable and also balancing uh, satisfaction from your primary constituents that are also contributing a large portion of the funding to all of these efforts as well. Yeah. Well, and, and it, I've seen a similar struggle that, you know, t- it sounds similar when I, you know, when I've talked to Adam Butler about this, when I talk to William McKinley about whitetail deer stuff, when he starts mm-hmm. talking about CWD regulations and its effects on baiting, you hear it when you hear, the guys, you know, the Department of Wildlife in Arkansas, and they're making the decisions about uh, Biomeda, and and I, you you see that same struggle trying to balance mm-hmm. between the resource and keeping the hunters happy. And I end up in the same position that Will does. I'm like, man, I do not envy what you have to yeah. do. But yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I, I I typically end up siding with the biologist or the Department of Wildlife because I know I was like, even though it might not be ideal, I know what they're trying to do. They're not trying to take <laughs> hunter opportunity away. They're mm-hmm. trying to in I mean in short, they're trying to make sure that we have hunting for the long run and have yeah. good hunting. You know, and, yeah. I, and well, I can no, understand that. I, I think generally most people understand that you know that mm-hmm. that this this is if we get to a situation where we need to change the way that we're doing things to keep turkeys for generations then we should make that decision mm-hmm. right and it may be frustrating because you don't you lose a weekend or two of hunting or something as a result of it but i think generally most people can get behind you know that if if that is what we need to do to be sustainable then we should do that mm-hmm um, so, but I think, I think, you know, where a lot of hunters get really frustrated on this issue is that they haven't seen data produced yet that directly shows, okay, we delayed the season opening until most of the hens were on the nest and our nest success or, you know, pulp per hen ratios responded by increasing by this amount mm-hmm. that has not been done yet. Mm-hmm. And so without that information being there, they question, you know, why are these the changes that are being made? And that's why I said earlier that we have bits and pieces of information that that could suggest that that would occur. So in science, we would say that that's a plausible hypothesis, a plausible mechanism. Um, but I think a lot of people get frustrated that they haven't seen that smoking gun piece of evidence. Right. Yeah. And uh, when you say that, are you meaning you ha- they have not seen results from that happening or just haven't had enough time to collect enough data to show? Well, there's only, to our knowledge, there's only been a co- I mean, there's a couple of experiments that we discussed recently on the podcast that are, that are ongoing or wrapping up. And the one is in Mississippi um, that Marcus talked about a little while earlier, where they had these paired sets of WMAs where they implemented a season date delay on one and nothing on the other. They stay with the status quo. And like Marcus said, that they, they, they were monitoring um, hunter observations was kind of how they were tracking how populations responded. And one of the main metrics that they keyed in on was um, the number of Jake's observed by hunters year over year, because that would provide you a really good indication of what the previous year's recruitment, the previous year's hatch was like. Um, And the other study that's, that's being conducted, that one's in Tennessee, um, and it's kind of a similar deal where they have certain WMAs where they've delayed the season and certain ones where they haven't, it's but they're direct counties there. 
Oh, counties. Yeah, my bad. Yeah. Thanks, Marcus. Mm-hmm. And they're actually tagging hens and looking at those nest success rates and those poult survival rates. So it's a more even more direct measure. Both are good designs, um, but they're just you know being uh, implemented a little bit differently. And so far, in neither of those studies have they been able to document any effect of that those actions on reproduction. But there's other studies in the works. Um, you know, there's always limitations, you know, maybe, maybe the treatment that they implemented the delay, maybe it wasn't, uh, late enough, you know, for example, like in the Mississippi study, um, they didn't move all the way back to the median nest initiation date, which is kind of the suggestion that's been put forth in a couple of documents as to when it needs to be moved back to avoid interfering with reproduction. They did that, um, in the Tennessee study, their actual delay was more in line with that recommendation. And they followed that population for what was it, Marcus, two years after they made the change or Yeah, I think this is the they're going into the third year now. They're about to add a third and they haven't been able to document any changes in those vital rates like nest success or pult survival that are that have come out of that change. But I, I think you keyed right in on it. Uh both of those things could be a problem. It could be that the treatment isn't sufficient to mm-hmm. elicit a response mm-hmm. or we haven't done it for long enough for things to change where we could observe it. Right. Or the third part of that is that may not be what is leading to our problems. Mm-hmm. Like it mm-hmm. may not be related to timing. And I think that's what's frustrating to a lot of people out there is they are starting to understand that there's uncertainty and we have multiple hypotheses then we're trying to figure out and it's really difficult as we spent a lot of time already on here outlining it's really hard to get a a an isolated factor like you have to go through a lot of effort to isolate something like season date to then assess it and then it's frustrating when you know uh, you you might have to wait a while to see if it worked, and it's also f- frustrating that uh, you know the the treatment might not have been sufficient when it was implemented. You know, like there's lots of uncertainties, and that's why it takes a lot of care uh, from the scientific standpoint to really try to to tackle a problem like this that is extremely difficult to mm-hmm. tackle. Takes me back to the our kind of original sentiment. I don't envy that situation. Like it's like, like that's just a hard one to, I mean, that's a very, that's, that's a large, uh, that's just a large task. Yeah. Tall order. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's all order to try to figure that out and to be tasked with that, to try to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of where Marcus and I left it and we, we did a recap episode after all having all these conversations with these scientists about this particular issue is that we think it's, you know, the season date, hypothesis if you will um is plausible it's worthy of additional study um but my you know my thought as far as like the probability of that being the explanation for a lot of the declines we're seeing is starting to decrease with the Mm -hmm. results of these studies starting to come out gotcha yeah at least as a soul you know yeah the, the other problem with this is it very well could be that that's part of the problem and we have lots of other parts to the problem too. And yes. I think I'm, I'm in the same place with Will at the, the Mississippi and Tennessee studies. The, you know, those are very well designed experiments. The Tennessee study has hundreds of hens and nests that they followed and like they're really robust studies. Mm-hmm. 
that well, I don't I don't think that that necessarily definitively ends that conversation at all. No, it doesn't. It, it, it does give us some evidence that at least that is not the sole reason, uh, you know, that that we've seen declines. But it certainly could be part of it. And it may be an issue uh, that we haven't fully uh, captured with the study design, too. Right. And Marcus, you brought up a really important word there, the sole reason, because I think a lot of us is, is particularly like looking at this from the hunter side for me, um, we tend to get hung up on one issue or another, like it's habitat is predation, it's season dates, but likely in almost every population, all three of those things are affecting it to some degree. And so where kind of where we're going with this next step is trying to figure out what is the relative contribution of each of these factors, as well as disease, feral pigs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many things that can affect turkey populations, but we don't have the science to sort that out in every situation and know what that top factor is or the second or third, much less for that matter. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's where this the, doing these kinds of experiments is critical because you can start to isolate those factors. Mm-hmm. and then start to get a relative contribution of them. And then we can start to really reflect on what can we do, you know, a- either as an individual on your own 40 acres or collectively at the state or even regional level, you know, there, what do we, what do we expect to happen if we change different things at those different scales? And that, you know, I think that's where we're trying to get to. And it just takes, a lot of work and a lot of time mm-hmm. to get there. Well, if there's one thing I, I, I learned it from my wildlife professors when I was at Mississippi state and I've learned it through doing this podcast or however many years we've done it now, I've never, never seen a single wildlife issue or talk to a biologist about one where there was like one single factor where they changed that one factor and right. it fixed everything. It, it's like, I don't think it's possible. I think it's, there's always multiple factors. Always. Yeah. It may be a predominant one, but right. there's always multiple. One, the, the other thing, you know, what, what is that dominant factor here is probably different than what that dominant factor is there. Like there's, right you know, they're playing a different relative role to one another in different places. Mm -hmm. Which so brings me to my next controversial (laughs) topic, but it's, I feel like we have to talk about it to some degree. Well, we're we're here for it. So so (laughs) bring it tied right into the changing of the season framework. One that, that I guess raised a lot of eyebrows, especially in the hunting community is Alabama had the, that decoy law implemented. And then so, and that's one that you hear all the time about and talking about hunters wanting to focus on one thing that like, man, if we would get rid of the strutter decoys, if we would ban reaping and, and I'll be honest, like I'll, I'll willingly throw myself into the fire. I don't know how many few years ago it was when you first started seeing videos of folks fanning turkeys, reaping turkeys, whatever you want to call it. When it first happened, everybody thought it was awesome. Like everyone was like, Whoa, that's crazy. That looks cool. And then I think it was in 2016, like there's video footage of it. I sat behind a strutter decoy and I shot a turkey in Florida. And I was like, this is one of the coolest things I've ever done. And then being fully honest, you start hearing about all the decline stuff. You start hearing talking about these one, the issue. I got to where I didn't even want to watch that anymore. I didn't want to think about it. I was like, man, I shouldn't have done that. And I didn't, and, and I don't know where, where all that lands, you know, people want mm-hmm. and it must have had enough eyebrows raised within 
you know, the community, at least at the Alabama wildlife department, because they changed their seasons or changed their laws about it. So again, it's kind of the same question that I asked about the season framework, just directed at decoys. Like, was that decision science driven? What do we have any sort of, any sort of conclusions? I know it's been short, but do we have any sort of conclusions to be drawn to say, yes, this is a cause for concern or it possibly could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want me to take that wheel? I can <laughs> sure. start with it and you can tell me <laughs> wherever you want to insert. All yours. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So th- this is one of those conversations that just like you said, it's super divisive or highly opinionated. And unfortunately in this case, we don't have very clear data on it, mm-hmm. but we have enough information to know that it is a plausible concern. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of ways that that concern could arise. One, if it is affecting the harvest rate or the timing of harvest, that could link right into the same thing with the season frameworks. If that turns out to be a problem, you know, it could play into that. Another mm-hmm. one that I don't hear talked about very much and, and, uh, one thing, just a caveat, I think one thing that scientists need to do better, and we're really trying to do this, is talk about when we are talking about or being explicit when we're talking about a hypothesis or when we're actually making a database inference, right? Mm-hmm. And one hypothesis that we and where we don't have the data, but it is a plausible hypothesis, is that it is changing which individuals are, are vulnerable, and that could agree some sort of of consequence to the fitness of the population overall mm-hmm. and where what we do have data on and it's from a bunch of different species uh not not turkeys but a bunch of species that have ele- elaborate breeding uh systems like like turkeys do we know that 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 male that, that elaborate display is a signal for its relative fitness so how good is the male is kind of, you know, advertising that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before this, you know, these hyper-realistic decoys, this fanning, before those, you you guys probably knew about it. There are some individuals in the population, it's often that big strutter that's out in the middle of a field with a bunch of hens. He was pretty safe, mm-hmm. right? He's hard to kill. That was the turkey at the deer camp that got a name. Yeah. Like that's yeah. so-and-so you can't kill him. Yeah. He's impossible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. He he's, you know, the infamous, uh, you know, father time or, you know, King of spring, you know, we've got all kinds of great names for him. Limb hanger. What was the one that nunnery talked about? Was it uh gallberry gallberry Joe or something like that? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while yeah. since I read that. Since yeah. I, read no, that book. I think it was gallberry Joe. I think it yeah, was. I, it's been a while too, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we, I mean, we have, they're, they're infamous, right? They're, that turkey. And I think one one plausible concern, the plausible hypothesis, we just do not have data on it, and I'm trying to be explicit about that, is that we, with, with some of these newer techniques that are really getting popular and now unpopular, depending on who you are, uh, there's some concern that those males that used to be relatively safe are now most vulnerable because mm-hmm. they're also the one that's going to storm storm in on you and try to whip that that turkey's butt right right mm-hmm. so i think that is plausible 
And, uh, you know, I, I think as we have stated, the state agencies are faced with a really difficult situation and we have some potential mechanisms that we may not have enough time to wait on really solid data on it before we need to go ahead and make that step. And some states have made the step and some haven't. And uh, they're really trying to balance that. But, you know, we know enough about mating systems in general to know that that is generally a signal of quality. And if we do indeed change the relative uh, threat of individuals based on their quality, that could, you know, influence productivity of the population as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so, and just kind of a, to add to that, and another way to think about this is, you know, state agencies usually, you know, they've got these decades of experience and data that they're setting their seasons up according to, right? Um, but over time, you know, in, embedded embedded in those in those data sets and the regulations that they that they base off of those data sets um, are assumptions assumptions about you know, how effective hunters are at harvesting birds, for example. And if the effectiveness of hunters starts to evolve over time, it would make sense that regulations have to evolve alongside that because they see that, you know, the status quo that they were using previously is no longer working well. That means one of our underlying assumptions must have been violated. And, you know, it could be any number of things. It doesn't just have to be decoys that are violating that assumption. But, you know, the there's no doubt that turkey hunting has evolved in major ways, you know, even over mm. the past few years. Um, and so it makes sense that the same regulations aren't going to necessarily lead to the same outcomes that they did previously. Hmm. I, I think another thing to add to this conversation that, you know, the fanning and decoys get, they've been really popular now that we're in a time where everybody's opinion is really easy to spread rapidly you know, that that's the one at the forefront of everybody's mind. But like Will just said, I mean, turkey hunting has evolved a lot over the last couple hundred years, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've had many advances in technology and there's always a, a major concern about that, not just with turkeys, but uh, since we're talking about turkeys today, you know, there's always concerns when you have these huge leaps in yeah. technology that change relative success of of hunters mm-hmm. so uh but you know i don't want to diminish that concern i'm very uncomfortable to say that it's a major problem or that it's not because mm-hmm. i don't have the data to to yeah. make that inference but is it plausible that it that it's of concern absolutely i think that that we can say that it is something that we need to be worried about and get information on and decide you know, what we should do about it. Uh, we need to collect that data. It is definitely a plausible concern. Do you know any efforts going on to collect data like that beyond Alabama changing, you know, those laws in their states? Are there any more concentrated efforts to get that kind of data? Not that I know of. I don't know of anyone that's doing a, what I would refer to as a decoy effectiveness study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, that is a really difficult thing to isolate. Yeah. I was about uh, to say, I assume that would be like impossible to <laughs> yeah. do. But it's, it's not yeah, impossible, I mean, but it, it, uh, it's definitely a challenge. And, and right. Will and I have even talked about yeah. uh, trying to do such a study and seeing if we can figure out where to get it funded. That's one of the challenges with all of this stuff is 
trying to figure out how to fund the work is is really challenging. And, uh, you know, we're we're trying to get the state agency or organizations like TFT or NWTF, you know, all these organizations to fund all that effort. And it they're, they're just not enough mm-hmm. funding to fund everything. Yeah. Right? So and I mean, to go to alternative models and and. uh yeah. So we're we're trying to work out how to do that kind of study. Will and I have talked about it. And I think yeah. some other researchers have been talking about it as well, but we haven't mm-hmm. figured out how to to uh do it yet. Yeah. And I mean you I, guys know you guys know <laughs> yeah. you guys know how differently different turkeys respond to decoys and even the same turkey on different days. And so you just start thinking about like the number of interactions that you would have to record and try to quantify um, as far as to, you know, maybe like you're looking at things like the approach distance with and without a decoy. And then you start throwing into the mix, like, are you talking about a feeding hen? Are you talking about a strutter? (laughs) Are you talking about a Jake and all the variation and decoy designs that we have and, and filming enough birds interacting with those to start to draw some conclusions to come up with some average effect sizes mm-hmm. as a monumental task. Yeah, I well, mean, and then to connect that to a relative fitness in a population, that's another yeah. monumental task yeah, on top right. of what you just said. We're like just uh, establishing if Turkey, some turkeys are at more risk because of that is monumental. And then actually connecting that to fitness consequences is a, a huge step again. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, pair that with, I mean, you want to talk about something that has nuance within just the turkey hunter community. I mean, there's some folks that are like, if you use decoys, you're not a turkey hunter. There's some folks that mm-hmm. if you put a strutter and you put them on a stake out in the field, you're fine. But if you, by God, if you get out there and crawl behind him, you're the worst, you're, mm-hmm. you're my worst enemy. Mm-hmm. It's very, and like I said, it. I, and full disclosure, I've done all of them. Some mm-hmm. of them I feel bad for now, just being honest. And I didn't even really like, I personally did not want to talk about this particular topic on this podcast <laughs> because everybody and their mother is talking about it. But mm-hmm. most of the time when I hear people talk about it, it's not with people like y'all that are biologists that have different insight. And it's like, I, I don't want to have me and Jordan shooting the breeze talking about whether or not people should fan turkeys or not, because then we're just throwing fuel on the fire. But I felt with having y'all on here, we could bring some actual clarity or a more clear picture on it. If that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Well, I think, I think one of the important things is, you know, there's a lot of focus on making people feel bad about Mm -hmm. it. And we're, you know, we just need to collect information on it. And if we decide that it's something that we shouldn't do, then we should do that. It's not to cast blame on anybody. Mm. But, you know, uh, that uh, that's what I see. The division, I think, is, you know, we, we all want to be able to hunt turkeys and have fun doing that and share that with our friends and family and continue to do that into the future. You know, we all want that same common goal. And we have some disagreement on how to get there and whether or not this practice should be done or that one. And this is one of those that really gets people riled up. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is not about casting blame. And, you know, I think it, it may not be anything to worry about at all or mm-hmm. that it's plausible. There are some mechanisms biologically that could be of concern. And if we get data, then we should collectively decide, OK, we're going to move it a different way with it. But yeah, I don't 
uh, you know, I don't, that's not to cast blame on anybody. I, I don't, I try not to ever judge people because they're doing things a different way than I am. But, you know, this is a really a, a decision about the resource at the end of the day. And if we get data to s- suggest that that's a problem, then we should address it. And if we get data that suggests it isn't a problem, then we should leave it. Mm-hmm. I have a question. You're talking about funding and stuff, and I made a joke about late paying for it. But uh, anyway, <laughs> like just curious, because I have no idea on this, like say like a five-year study on something like that. What, I mean, what would that cost for funding? Do you have an idea? I mean, I'm sure you do. Is that something you want to talk about? It costs a lot. I can say that. Okay. It, like that's that's one millions. Yeah. I, I, Will and I put something together and I don't remember the numbers <laughs> on it right off the top of my head, but most of the time it's a cost that's pretty undigestible to a lot of people that we would spend that much money mm-hmm. on something. Gotcha. And, and there's lots no of idea. what, yeah, there's lots of places that that money goes. Uh, all, a lot of it goes into personnel, you mm-hmm. know, into graduate students' time and, uh, you know, into other personnel. They're helping implement treatments. Uh, I don't remember what this particular one would be, but it's definitely into well into the six figures. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, so, so for me, when I get a – a project like that sponsored, none of that money's going into my pocket. It's all going to pay graduate students and we don't pay them that much um, to pay in their tuition, you know, at the university mm-hmm. as well to pay in for all the mileage that we're racking up, driving around trucks, you know, doing this stuff and then all the equipment supplies. And then they got to, they got to hire hourly research technicians that are helping them out an extra set of hands. So like Marcus said, a lot of it is personnel, um, and then if you're doing another type of study where you're throwing like GPS transmitters into the mix, each one of those units is about $1,500. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you extrapolate that across hundreds of turkeys that are included in some of these studies and you can run up the bill really quickly. Mm-hmm. Especially right. you start trying to replicate it so that we have a robust design. Now we have to do the same thing in several areas. You know, you, you can see how that can accumulate really fast. But Will said something that's really important that I'm not sure that is necessarily evident to people out there. None of that money is going into our pocket. Mm-hmm. All I get when I get something funded like that is a lot more work. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I, I have a lot more to do because I now have to manage a project and oversee, you know, the spending on the project and the personnel and I have to, uh, you know, it, it's just more work. And mm-hmm. we're here that's why we're in this business is because we know that we need information on something. And that is our job is to try to, to get it. And if we get something funded like that, it gives us more work to do, you know, something for the resource like that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that's necessarily evident to people out there that it's just more work for us. It often means less Turkey hunting for me, you know, that's not, that's an unfortunate consequence. Mm-hmm. I get to spend a lot of time with turkeys, but also don't get to spend as much time hunting them as a result of it. And that's fine. I, I've decided that a long time ago that I was willing to make that trade off to try to to improve the the resource management as a whole. You know, and that's a trade off that I took. But another thing that we get get out of that that is also I don't I think sometimes undervalued or not thought about is those graduate students turn into our our next generation of researchers and our next generation of wildlife biologists that are now experts on the topic area and they understand 
the data that we have or don't have and how that influences decision making. And, you know, that's where those people come from. They go through mm-hmm. that process. That's where we came from. Will and I both went through that process and, you know, developing our next generation of experts on the resources just as important as, uh, you know, some of these decisions that we're making. We need those people, you know, that are knowledgeable about it and then that can continue that into the future. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm glad you covered that because I had no idea, like, what all goes into it. I hear about, you know, research projects from mm-hmm. my point of view, just being a recreation guy. Mm-hmm. but I'm not hands-on. I'm not in the loop. And knowing that it takes that amount of resources to get something like this done is eye-opening to me mm-hmm. saying, Hey, you know, we really need to do something on that side of things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, well, it, it gives extra incentive, I think for, I mean, like take turkeys for tomorrow, for example, who, who y'all work with. Um, I feel like, you know, turkey hunters being a pat, the passionate bunch that we are, uh, are always, or the folks in my circle at least are always happy to donate what they can to organizations mm-hmm. like turkeys for tomorrow, but it does, it, it helps even more to shed, you know, to give a little clarity, shed a little light on what mm-hmm. actually all of it takes to get these kind of things done. And so it's, it's, yeah. um, and it's nice. I, I think turkeys for tomorrow has done a very good job on showing where, dollars mm-hmm. are going showing research projects it's been it i've learned more from them about you know research projects and studies uh, in the past few years than i than i ever have and and mm-hmm. it's been been very enlightening well i think that you know you bring up several good points like that one, one with turkeys for tomorrow i i have also felt the same way they're they're trying to direct a lot of their funds that they raise into research and now into communication, you know, through the support of our podcast, communicating that research, bringing the community of researchers together so that we can give people information on what's going on in their state. You know, all those things have been great. And the other point to that is that people have lots of opportunities to help. Mm-hmm. One is just by buying a hunting license, you're already contributing into that model or a turkey permit. You know, those funds that's a more traditional way that these kind this kind of work gets funded from the state agency they're using some of those those funds to to support research activities also it's easier now than ever for people to give directly to a particular program Mm -hmm. like will and i both have an opportunity if you want to donate to my research on osceola's you can do that directly like we have a link to it that's fine or maybe you want to just contribute directly to research or communication as a whole, and you can do that by joining TFT as a member or uh, other organizations, or you can donate to them. And then they are deciding where to, you know, which project to put it toward. And and I think TFT's done a great job, like you said, you know, and trying to be transparent of where that money goes. But, I mean, they they've... They're funding uh, part of the work with with Will in Alabama. They've sent funding to multiple projects in Mississippi. They just announced they're contributing some of the funding to this year in the Tennessee study. You know the uh, what the Kentucky study as well. Will you know they they are actively trying to disseminate funds to places where they can see you know uh, a real benefit 
from a research standpoint, and they've, you know, tried to actively do that. And, you know, I, I think that's important. And uh, I, I just wanted to reiterate to people that, you know, you can give in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it's not just by donation financially, like you could give in other ways. Like we spend a lot of our time trying to teach people or tell people what what they can do on their own land. Mm-hmm. You're giving back there too, right? Just by helping increase turkey productivity. So mm-hmm. there are lots of ways that you can be involved in the conversation. And now we're in a position where, you know, you have lots of different ways that you can do that. Mm-hmm. And shameless plug talking about creative ways to give back when we do. So we're doing a, uh, we did a, a live podcast event at Rick's in Starkville last year. We're doing it again yeah. this year and turkeys for tomorrow is going to be bringing one of their, uh, guns that they're giving away. I think it's a, a super black Eagle three twenty gauge, like the TFT oh, yeah. giveaway gun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to raffle that off and all that's going to go to the turkeys for tomorrow. Yeah. Um, that's great. Just talking about creative ways, you know. Well, I know, and I think that's awesome, you know, that we, we've we kind of rallied, mm-hmm. right, from all aspects, you know, whether you're in the business part of it or the science part of it or or the, the nonprofit part of it, we're all rallying together, and I think that's something to, to really elevate for people. That, you know, we're coming together as a community. We know there's some concern over turkeys. And people are rallying together, and and that's what ultimately Will and I are trying to help do. Let's get mm-hmm. it, bring us all together, and uh, yeah. we're just trying to contribute <laughs> on our small front of that, mm-hmm. where we thought we could complement everybody else's efforts. But you know, these fundraising events, you know, uh, all these different things are are ways that we can all come together and try to collectively solve some problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a silver lining of what's going on right now, too, is there's probably more turkey work being done concurrently across the U.S. than there ever has been at any point in history. So, yeah. I mean, over the next five to ten years, there's going to be a lot of good work coming out. We're going to yeah. in- improve our, our understanding of turkeys and move that needle quite a bit. Yeah. One that, you know, and just to continue on the coming together, we have multiple state agencies that are contributing to the same research projects together. We have... Uh, the Turkeys for Tomorrow and NWTF are both contributing funding to the same research projects in multiple places. We, you know, uh, we have a lot of of uh, organizations and people and and everything coming together, and I think that's a really special time, and it's really showing because we're we're getting a lot of good stuff going and and a lot of good stuff done in a lot of places because of it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, the rallying part of it is pretty evident, I think, to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, let's do this before we wrap up. I want to make sure that y'all y- y'all plug where they can find y'all's podcast, where they can find y'all on social, all that stuff. You know where people find stuff these days. Sure. Yeah. So the the podcast is pretty easy to find now. Uh, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and it's on. Is it Google? Right. Yeah, basically for- any any major platform where you get podcasts, it's there. Yeah, if it isn't fa- there, let us know and we'll get it. Right, there. I'm not as familiar with the Android platform, so I wasn't sure on that one. So that's why um, I just use the blanket. We put it on every one that we could. Every major, yeah. <laughs> you get it on all the major platforms. I mean, Spotify, Apple, Google, yeah. I mean, Google Play, even some people use that. But yeah, yeah. Right? So just and if they get on any of those and search, you know, Wild Turkey Science, they'll mm-hmm. nice. Right. And yeah. then as, as far as social goes, 
Um, I'm at Dr. Will Goolsby. It's D-R underscore Will underscore G-U-L-S-B-Y. Um, and then Marcus is on Instagram at Dr. Disturbance. Um, and those, those are, that's probably the platform that he and I utilize the most and interact with our listeners the most on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do. Uh, I know, like you know, but some of the audience out there may not. I have been doing it a while. And Will has been uh, doing it also. We put a lot of like we try to highlight new science when it comes out or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, the other thing that we now are collectively doing together is when we go through research on the the podcast, for instance, we try to then cover those articles uh, on Instagram. We also link uh, as many as we can in the show notes of the episode so that people have direct access to data that we're presenting and trying in the effort to be as transparent as possible. Uh, So all of those platforms. And, you know, if you're interested in reaching out to me, I'm more than happy to, to answer questions or uh, a lot of people like to rant about things that we said, or maybe you have ideas on things that are needed or you have some data. All of those things are fine. Come, come on with it. Uh, we, we take all. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Dr. Disturbance, I'll, you know, I, I do my best to answer every question that comes in, which is a tall order in and of itself now. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Yeah. At, do- would- at Dr. Disturbance is the complaint department and at Dr. Wigglesby is, is for all the attaboys. So hey, you know how to hey, make, yeah. sure, make sure you direct it properly. Yeah, you're throwing that back on me, huh? I did that to him on one of the episodes. It's like now this is going to make a lot of people mad if you have if you have complaints, you can email Will Goldsby. Marcus Lashley at yeah, yeah. But it, you know we're we're here for everybody. So you know some people want to rant or complain, and some people just have questions, and you know it doesn't matter. Reach out to us if you have something you want to talk to us about. Yeah, I think it was the. The second time we had Dr. Chamberlain on our show, he when he first got on, he said, "Yeah, I went ahead and cleared my email inbox out for, <laughs> for all the the bad ones I get after this one." I was like, "I'm sorry." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think I, our last episode, like, uh, I don't remember when that was, but it was the same kind of deal. I I, I got a fair amount of feedback about that one. <laughs> Turkey hunters are a passionate bunch, man. It's just, yeah. it's just kind of how, how it crumbles. Um, but yeah. gentlemen, I, I, I appreciate the conversation and the time I, I got, I learned a lot from this and, uh, Jordan, you got any more wild questions to ask? I'll, I'll these think of go? something for the next time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we, we really appreciate you guys having us and, and absolutely, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun, great conversation for sure. Yeah. For sure. We'll get y'all on here next time. Thanks and, y'all again. Enjoyed it. That's going to wrap us up for this week. Look, I really hope that you all enjoyed that conversation as much as Jordan and I did. I I find it to be really beneficial for me, um, mainly coming from a turkey hunter's perspective. When I talk to those guys that are looking at some of these issues that obviously we as turkey hunters care a lot about and are very interested in, it's it's always nice to to hear a perspective that comes from those guys that are looking at it, obviously, from a much more – ecological biological science based um, point of view so again if you like what you heard take the time go check out those guys podcast it's new but they have a lot of good stuff coming out it's called wild turkey science you can find it on any of the major podcast platforms and that podcast is made possible by 
Turkeys for Tomorrow, which is a pretty incredible conservation organization. If you haven't heard of it, which I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have. Last, Lastly, please come check us out at Rick's Cafe, February 28th, 6 to 8 p.m., live podcast us and the spring legion boys will be hanging out we talking wild turkeys giving away a lot of cool stuff turkey calls turkey vest and then we're giving away a benelli super black eagle 3 20 gauge have to be present to win um yeah enjoy the week we'll see y'all next time as always thank you for listening to the speak the language podcast presented by on x hunt <laughs>